Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, a podcast that goes into the most important, um, exciting, but also controversial events in the history of the Roman Catholic Communion. Welcome. Uh, my name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast. Thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you for people who have been helping me spread the word about the podcast. Uh, if you like this podcast, uh, please go and tell friends, recommend it to them. Uh, if you please go and if you'd like, uh, do like the content, go and subscribe on Spotify for podcasters, Apple podcast, wherever you listen. Also on YouTube. Um, I actually need to post a few, a few episodes I haven't gotten there yet, but also on YouTube, um, a Facebook page, go like it. And, uh, I have a website, churchcontroversies.com where you can find more material links to my, um, articles in crisis magazine and elsewhere. Uh, and if you like the podcast, you like what we're trying to do here and give Catholics uh, background to some, you know, controversial events um, for apologetic reasons, some historical background knowledge, uh, please, you can find uh, uh, Controversies in Church History on Patreon. Go become a Patreon uh, patron there if you want. I think the levels are 5 7 and $10 a month. Uh, you can get bonus content if you subscribe. You get early access to uh, episodes. I haven't actually created any bonus content, much bonus content yet uh, for my patrons, but uh, it's on the way. I promise I've been busy in teaching duties, but it's coming. Uh, please bear with me. But anyway, um, welcome again to uh, the third episode in our series on Latinization, the Latinization of the Eastern Rites. A controversial topic in this instance is, you know, um, the Roman Catholic Church with its Latin rite and its Latin customs imposing on the Eastern churches. And we've already done two episodes. One was a setup. The second one was on the Middle Ages. And what I've decided to do, I was going to do one episode on the early modern period. And having dug into it a little more, there's too much material. <laughs> so we're going to have a little setup episode here in episode three to talk about uh, I'm titling this the uh, Era of Reformations from about 1450 to about 1750, uh, because you're having this era where the Reformation really changes things for the Roman Catholic Church, for Rome, and that affects how it deals with the Eastern churches. And so we're going to do, uh, after this episode, we're going to set the big two background <clears throat> changes that'll set the, the stage for this. Um, probably the next episode will be on the... Uh, what we'll call the churches of the East, that is the Chaldean uh, churches, or you can call them Nestorian, but those churches that never accepted Chalcedon. Uh, that'll include both uh, relations with the Middle East, but also with India. Uh, after that, we'll talk about the the more, the say, Western, Middle Eastern rites, the Maronite church mostly, but also what happened with the other, uh, other rites. <clears throat> Uh, Chalcedonian, uh, but non-Orthodox uh, uh, Chalcedonian churches that came into communion with Rome. And then finally, a short one, maybe a real short one, on uh, um, relations with uh, the um, the Slavic churches, the Ukrainian and Ruthenian churches that come into communion with Rome in the 16th and 17th centuries. So <clears throat> you get uh, more episodes, so <laughs> more bang for your buck here. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the background for this because... In talking about this, I, I think I'll re repeat this. The term Latinization doesn't really appear anywhere until the 1960s. It's a it's an anachronistic term. Nobody would have thought in these terms uh, in this period. <clears throat> and in the Middle Ages, I had to kind of find stuff that might actually look like this. But as you get to the early modern period, you're going to see something like 
for the first time, I think, with pe when people use that criticism, that this is Latinization, whereas the Roman Church is just imposing its its um, customs on the Eastern Churches. Something like this, I think, appears for the first time for a couple of reasons. So let's get into this. And I'm calling this the area of Reformations, not just because of the Protestant Reformation, but <clears throat> at the end of the Middle Ages, there were multiple attempts to reform the Catholic Church. Most of them failed. Um, there were reforms, uh, reform efforts going back to at least, well, the Great Schism. Uh, I've done, or I've done a podcast on this. You can go look, listen to the one, the Council of Constance, which ended uh, the Western Schism. Actually, was a reform council. Had high hopes for it. It didn't work. It caused schisms, the Hussite schism, the Utraquist schism. I may have to do. I have to do an episode, a short one on the Utraquist schism because it's kind of interesting. I only mention this because the Hussite and Utraquist schisms had to do with things we might think of being customs and not doctrines. Um, Utraquism, by the way, refers to um, um, it's a Latin term meaning and basically both. And what it meant was you had people wanting to schism because Rome refused to give them communion under both kinds. Uh, in Rome, the tra traditions for I don't know how long, forever, has been just you take uh, the uh, <clears throat> Eucharistic wafer. Um, but these these Catholics wanted both uh, communion under both kinds, and they separated from Rome for well over a century, and then came back into communion with them, with Rome. So uh, this is in you know, Bohemia, which would be modern-day Czech Republic, but... Uh, there, all this stuff is going on. This, of course, feeds into the Protestant Reformation, the 16th century. I won't, I won't go over this, <clears throat> but it's gonna, it's gonna really change things for Rome in a couple of ways. One is that, you know, Protestants, Protestants are kind of like in the early days of, of Protestantism. You shouldn't think of them as being the sort of staid, if you know. I'm figuring most people in this country. I'm doing this in the United States. Most people in the United States have friends, family members that are Protestants. Their faith doesn't seem terribly subversive or dangerous. But in the 16th century, Protestants, like they, they did, they were subversive. They did things like, for example, um, um, uh, oh God, um, Klaus Gomber, the liturgical scholar, mentioned how when Lutherans took over churches, sometimes in some places, most places they got rid of Latin, some places where they, there was a large number of, of Catholics, they wouldn't do that. They would keep Latin, but change the words of the Eucharistic prayer. So it, so it didn't mean, it, it basically denied the belief in, in the idea that the Mass was a sacrifice. And so they did things like this. And I'll show you in a second, Council of Trent reacted to this, not directly to this, but partially to this. Uh, but also, of course, widespread Protestant iconoclasm, attacks on the Mass, attacks on Catholic devotions like the Rosary. Um, during the reign of Queen Mary in, uh, in England, uh, remember when uh, Catholicism came back briefly in England after Henry VIII died, after the Reformation there, Cardinal Pole gave a sermon. Cardinal Pole was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Mary, and he gave a sermon talking about how the Reformers in England had proceeded not by directly attacking the Catholic Mass, but by attacking well, liturgical customs, lighting candles, um, you know, saying the rosary, saying these things were merely superstitious but not attacking the Mass, then eventually building people up to getting them used to that idea, and then finally attacking the Mass. So this left, it, left a real mark on, uh, on, on the Roman Church when they finally got around to doing something about this, because at the Council of Trent, you're going to have um, if you look at it, if you go to, uh, you can find this in the, um, 
the 20, I think it's the 22nd session of the Council of Trent. Uh, there's a chapter on, there's a uh, session on the Mass, and there's a chapter, chapter 8, where it talks about, because they didn't want to give up uh, Latin, right? That's part of the Latin, Roman tradition. But it also said, and I'll read it here, what it says, is that um, um, because you're not going to celebrate in what it calls the vulgar tongue, um, that the sheep of Christ may not suffer hunger, nor the little ones ask for bread, and there be none to break it unto them. The Holy Synod charges pastors and all who have the cure of souls, that they frequently, during the celebration of Mass, expound either by themselves or others some portion of those things which are read at Mass, and that amongst the rest they may explain some mystery of this most holy sacrifice. In other words, they're responding to the Protestant criticism that people can understand this stuff. Uh, and also responding to the fact that there was ignorance among clergy and lay people to try to undo all this stuff. So you get this in that same that same um that same session, there's actually a decree, a decree concerning the things which would be observed and avoided in the celebration of Mass. And the last paragraph says this, lastly, that no room for uh, may be left for superstition. They shall by ordinance and under penalties, uh, given penalties, provide that priests do not celebrate other than due hours, nor employ other rites or ceremonies and prayers in the celebration of Masses, besides those which have been approved of by the Church and have been received by a frequent and praise were the usage, and they they meant they mentioned things like by, by the way like like a, a fixed num- certain number. They mentioned a fixed number of certain masses and of candles, and other things as being superstitious. So they recognize uh, tacitly some of the criticisms of the Protestants. Um, and the point of all this is that this was kind of what happened with the reform of the liturgy. Not to get into a, 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 a sort of a controversial thing in its own right here, but the Roman Missal was pared down. The number of feast days, number of things like sequences, which are long prayers um, um, after the uh, after the gradual or after during the Alleluia and certain feast days was were abolished. And so you did this, and Rome did this as a means of trying to make uniform the right to avoid the abuses that led to the Reformation. And this is going to leave a real mark on how it thinks about liturgical matters. Although, as you're going to see, it doesn't have necessarily the effect you would think for um, for a uh, for a, you, know, you. It doesn't necessarily lead to straightforward Latinization and the imposition of Latin customs on the Eastern churches. So the Reformation and the Roman Church's reaction to this is one big aspect uh, of the story. The second thing we need to understand here um, is uh, the because this this is the same era in which begins the age of Western exploration and conquest, particularly with the uh, nations of Iberia, mostly in the <clears throat> late fifteenth, early sixteenth century. It's it's Portugal and Spain who are exploring other continents, known ones. They, of course, um, Columbus is one of the discoverers uh, of, of North America, or the Americas, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, so you have both of these countries um, racing to sort of, you know, make claims to this. And this is where you get the uh, papal so-called bulls of discovery. Um, a bull was issued by um, one of the, I don't remember the Pope was, in 1493, attempting to mediate disputes between Portugal and Spain. I'll clarify this because this stuff is in the news. The papacy never gave its imprimatur, because this is not about this, this this, uh, this topic, Latinization, is kind of sort of related to it, because you are talking about the imposition of uh, cultural customs on, on our peoples, but 
little different. We're not talking about the, the peoples of the Americas, the peoples that they discovered. Some people were already Christians. <clears throat> I do have to point this out. The papacy never, never approved of conquering people by, converting people by force. In 1537, Paul III issued a, 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 a bull, um, Sublimus Deus, in which he talks about how it's not correct to, to, to convert people by enslaving them. Um, the church always, you know, um, recognized you couldn't do that, more or less. There are always exceptions in practice, by the way. There's always some bad pope, some bad bishop, some bad missionary who does the opposite of these things. But in principle, um, that wasn't really an issue. Practice, of course, it was because, because of Western expansion. And particularly for our story, as we'll get into it next time, the Portuguese are the ones you need to focus on. Uh, they're the ones, I mean, from the late 14th century, the late 1300s, the Portuguese monarchy began funding ocean exploration. And in the 1450s, Prince Henry the Navigator and his, um, and his ships began exploring the African coastline. And they were trying to break into the African, um, well, slave trade, other sorts of things. But also um, to try to find a way to trade with India. This was the big goal, <clears throat> was to find a way to get into the Indian spice trade. And this happened. Uh, 1488, Bartholomew Diaz, a Portuguese explorer, managed to uh, circumvent the tip of Africa, uh, Cape of Good Hope, I think is it's called now. Or maybe it is. Anyway, the Cape of Africa, it's a dangerous thing because there's very rough waters around this, but he managed to do it. And so this made the path to India possible. And so 10 years later, that's what happened. Uh, Vasco da Gama, another Portuguese Sailor arrives in Calcutta in 1498. And just as an interesting aside, when his interpreters made contact with a few Africans living in India, if you don't know, there's been, there had been centuries-long traffic between India and Africa. There were Indians living in Africa, Africans living in India. And these two Afri North Africans who could speak things like Catalan and Spanish, um, these two Africans asked them what they were doing there, and the interpreters told them, quote, we come to seek Christians and spices. Um, pepper, mostly. If you don't know why, by the way, people had no spice in the Middle Ages in a lot of places, and meat is, is pretty bad without spicing it up. So anyway, but it was made it very, very, it was like gold, uh, pepper was in that time period. Uh, eventually left, and then a couple of years later, um, another Portuguese fleet will leave, will, will arrive in Calcutta in 1500, but will leave after being attacked by uh, local Islamic merchants and trying to counterattack and being outnumbered, they leave. However, in 1502, Vasco da Gama returned, this time more heavily armed, and his ships outgun the Arab fleets there and basically began to push the Arabs out. The Arab Muslim uh, merchants had dominated the ocean, Indian Ocean trade. But over the succeeding decades, the Portuguese government would build fortified trading posts along the Indian um, coasts on the Indian Ocean and open trade routes from Africa to Indonesia and up to the coast of uh, Asia and China. And so they, be they become the dominant power in the Asian commerce for a while. And this is going to bear directly on the question of, the, of Latinization for, for India. And if you recall, as you'll see next time, uh, the situation in India today uh, bears a direct relation to what happens in the early modern period. So you can look forward to that. It's an interesting story. Uh, one other thing to note about this uh, this this um, age of exploration is just the the role of international politics in this, vis-a-vis <clears throat> -vis Eastern Christians and, and Rome. One, the major factor here in the Middle East is um, 
the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire rises in the 14th century, conquers Constantinople in 1453. Uh, they'll control the Middle East throughout all of this, this period, as well as parts of the Balkans. So they'll affect, and also Egypt. So they'll affect pretty much every area where there are Eastern Christians, um, both Slavic and um, other various types, um, Syriac, Coptic. And um, the Ottomans, of course, uh, will become rivals to the Habsburgs of Spain because Spain has a big empire. They have a big empire. And in fact, this gets into European politics because despite the fact they're Muslim, despite the fact that they're threatening Europe at several points, uh, the Kingdom of France tries to secure an alliance with them. I think it's several times, actually. Why? Because they're fighting for supremacy in Europe with the Habsburgs. And moreover, um, the Ottomans control the western trade routes of the Silk Road. The Silk Road is a road that runs from Asia into the Middle East. And so they, um, they, and over time, they increase the customs duties, the taxes on trade throughout this region. So this is part of what spurs Iberian exploration of oceanic trade, route and, trade routes in the first place. Uh, other thing here is that over Spain, but really the French, will put themselves forward, especially as you get into the modern period, but even in the early modern period, as the protector of Christians in the Middle East, Eastern Christians as well. Um, there have been religious orders in the Middle East since the time of the Crusades. Uh, the Franciscans were kicked out, actually, when the Ottomans took over initially, but they were brought back in the 13, 1349, invited back, or allowed to come back, and they've been there ever since. And so... As Western powers grow um, in power vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, they will increasingly involve themselves in the Middle East. Especially, we'll get to the 19th century. They are the protectors of, of, uh, of the Eastern churches, especially the ones that are in communion with Rome. Um, I also will mention this because you do have in certain places, it only, it trickle, only trickles in the Middle East. The, um, the Islamic world barely recognizes this in a lot of ways, but the Reformation will alter this because you will have Protestants getting into, definitely into Eastern Europe, uh, making converts, but also trying to subvert Catholicism in places like those places. But they are dimly aware of this um, in North Africa and the Middle East. Um, in terms of international politics. The other thing, because <clears throat> they're, they're aware of it, of course, because they're trying to make alliances, uh, you know, during the Protestant Catholic Wars. But also the um, uh, one note, brief note, I'll go to, the, I'll talk about this more next time, uh, the politics of India. Because as they get into India, India, India is so ancient. <laughs> Um, it has been, India, by the time you get to the 16th century, is basically a collection of different little princedoms, kingdoms. Uh, it's been that way, princely states, been that way for about a thousand years. The last time there had been a major empire in the, um, in the uh, uh, Indian subcontinent, I think was the 4th century AD, the Gupta Empire. Um, they've been, you know, it's been a mixed bag ever since. However, by the time you get to the 16th century, there are also Muslim powers there. In fact, at the end of the century, end of that century, the 16th century, uh, the Mughal dynasty will create a fairly powerful empire in northern India. But for the most part, it's this very complicated set of interlocking, um, bizarrely complex uh, group of states in India, about which, by the way, Europeans know nothing, virtually nothing. Um, their information about it's just way out of date. They just don't know anything when they get there. <clears throat> One thing I'll note about this is this has an impact because there will be when they get there, and this is what we'll talk about next time, Thomas Christians, people who 
they, they date their traditions from St. Thomas the Apostle, who by tradition is supposed to have gone to India and proselytized there and died. And um, they'll have been there living under polytheistic, they'll be there when they get there, they're living under polytheistic you know, Hindu rulers. Um, they had once had their own kingdoms. So it's that much, there's been an ocean of change since anybody in the West had known anything about India. So it's a vastly different uh, setup than they're, they're used to and they're aware of. And so finally, I want to end this, um, end this episode <clears throat> just briefly talking about papal policy in this period. Because <clears throat> we need to be clear here um, about what Rome was trying to do in a lot of instances with, the, with these Eastern Christians, and I'll go into this in a second. But two things need to keep in mind. One, of course, is the influence of Trent. Uh, one historian I came across reading through this talked about a... Um, I can't remember the exact phrase they used. Rome's idea of its relationship of um, of with the Eastern churches is that of a uh, a single jurisdiction with multiple rights. That is, you know, submission to Rome, but you get to keep your rights, your ancient rights. And it's sort of seen in these terms by Rome. And this is something, by the way, if you're wondering why this is controversial, if you're a Roman Catholic, like, well, of course, like you accept Rome, keep your rights. This looks like kind of like blackmail in some ways to the Orthodox, because in their minds, look, our rights are independent of Rome. They weren't started by Rome. We shouldn't have to submit to the jurisdiction of Rome to keep them. And that's not exactly what Rome's saying, but it kind of can sort of seem that way at times. The reason why Rome insists upon this, again, partly the influence of the Council of Trent, the idea that's you know the reassertion of, of Rome's authority in the wake of the Reformation. But, there's, as you're going to see here, I'm going to talk about this in the context of a, of a papal document, fascinating papal document, <clears throat> uh, that Rome sees itself as the guarantor of orthodoxy and the guarantor of the orthodoxy of all the rights of Christendom. And uh, as you kind of got some of this in, in the episode on, on the Middle Ages, a lot of times its concerns were, if, if it tried to impose certain things on you know, the Maronites or the Armenians or, or try to get them to you know become more like the Latins they thought of you know Roman tradition as being the purest and of course being that's the that's the 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 purpose of Rome's authority it's charism it's is to guard orthodoxy and that's 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 pretty consistent again we've seen here there'll be again bad popes you know uh, inconsiderate popes whatever bad you know, in practice where this doesn't happen, it does happen for bad reasons. It might happen for the reasons we moderns think it shouldn't, that they really are just imposing cultural customs on other people. Sometimes it does. But this is a fairly consistent uh, policy, as evidenced by a, an amazing document uh, issued by Pope Benedict XIV in 1755 um, called a Latte Sunt. And if you don't know who Benedict XIV was, he's a very, very... <clears throat> um, Brilliant scholar, uh, his name was Prosper Lambertini, uh, probably one of the few genuine scholars who've become pope in the last half millennia. Him and Benedict XVI, really, I guess you could say John Paul II, too, but very few. And he's one of the most brilliant people to sit on the throne of Peter. And in 1755, he got a letter from a missionary in what is modern-day Iraq from a city called Balsera, or Basora, he says it's called. And... Um, in the letter, the missionary informed him that many Catholics, he calls them of the Oriental Rite, usually Armenians or Syriac Christians, live in the city. They don't have any churches of their own, so they come to the Church of the Latin Missionaries, 
where their own priests perform their their services in their own rites. And so he inquired whether these Armenians should be basically forced to accept the Latin rites um, and accept the, the new dates of Easter, what the Latins do, and movable feast days and stuff like this. Um, <clears throat> and so his response to this was, absolutely not. Um, this is his quotation here. Um, he says... Um, uh, he's quoting things that some some of the congregations of Rome mentioned, but he says this, quote, Each and every missionary and prefect of apostolic mission should not dare in future, in any circumstance or under any pretext, to give a dispensation to Catholics of any Oriental nation, Eastern right, Catholics, in matters of fast, prayer, ceremonies, and such likes from the prescriptions of their own national right, which are approved by the Holy and Apostolic See. Uh, he'll reiterate this several times in this um in this letter, and he goes on to say that um, that uh, I mean over and over again they shouldn't do this. These missionaries, he says, "quote We gather from many other indications that Latin missionaries devote thought and care to destroying or at least weakening the Oriental rite in the course of converting Orientals from the era of schism to the unity of the, uh, unity of the Holy Catholic religion. They induce Oriental Catholics to embrace the Latin rite with the sole motivation of zealously spreading religion and performing a good work pleasing to God." Um, and basically, he's saying they shouldn't do that. And he does this over and over and over again in uh, this document. And one of the things that he points out here, and he actually, one of the things that's interesting about this, because Lambertini was basically a, had been a librarian of the papal libraries, and he's an historian. He goes back through, um, uh, basically, uh, several papal documents from the Middle Ages, demonstrating a consistent um, uh, consistent. Uh, theme among all these uh, these popes is that um, they should that the uh, that these churches should be allowed to retain their rights, provided there's nothing in them opposed to orthodoxy. He quotes, for example, Innocent the Third from the uh, Fourth Lateran Council. Uh, so he says, "Quote: Although the Greeks have this is this is uh, Innocent the Third Third." Although the Greeks have returned to obedience to the Apostolic See, we desire them as greatly as we can in the Lord to cherish and hold and honor their custom and rights, except for those customs which give rise to danger for souls and detract from the honor of the church. For in these cases, we neither should, nor do we want to respect them. Meaning, again, if it's opposed to the doctrines of, of, of the Catholic faith, then it's wrong, but otherwise, no. Uh, he quotes another um, letter of Innocent IV, who's writing to, he calls them the Ruthenians. These are essentially Ukrainians in the Middle Ages who came into a, a communion with Rome. Um... Yeah, therefore, dear son in Christ, this is Innocent the Fourth. we are moved by your prayer and grant by the authority of this letter to the bishops and other priests of Russia permission to consecrate leavened bread in accordance with their custom and to observe their other rites which are not opposed to the Catholic faith held by the Church of Rome. So there is this, um, there is this sense that, yes, they have these ancient rites. They should be allowed to have them. He mentions very interestingly Greek, um, Greek Christians under... Um, Greek and other Eastern Christians under their, under Latin jurisdiction in Italy. Um, he says here, this is uh, Clement the Fourteenth, um, excuse me, Benedict the Fourteenth, speaking in his own voice here again. Quote: It is proper here to remember the churches which, in later, later times, different popes entrusted to Greeks, Maronites, Armenians, Copts, and Melkites in Rome. These still exist, with each group performing the holy ceremonies in according with its own right. Um, 
Later down, he says, wherever a dispute arises about the practice of the Orientals or the Italo-Greeks, Italo-Greeks are Greek-speaking Christians who've been in Italy since well before the, the Great Schism and remain in communion with Rome. Uh, the Apostolic See makes every effort to ensure that they correct what clearly needs correction, but states at once that it desires the Oriental right to remain untouched and unshaken in all other respects. In other words, Rome really does respect the antiquity of these rights. It thinks it has value, but because they've been separated from Rome because of uh, schism, they, they, they're suspicious to some degree of possible heresy. And so that's one of the things that's over and over again. I mean, this is, he repeats it again, um, the concern for orthodoxy. He says, uh, again, this is uh, uh, Benedict Fourteenth. We will declare freely that the Roman pontiffs, pontiffs have carelessly, carefully and tirelessly attempted to overcome the heresies which gave rise to the schism between the Western and the Eastern Church, and that consequently they have commanded Orientals to, who want to return to the unity of the Church to reject these errors, to find out if they really belong in union with the Apostolic See. Um, they tend to equate uh, acceptance of Rome's jurisdiction with orthodoxy. And so you have this in, uh, in, uh, in uh, coming in, in here. What's striking about this, by the way, and again, this sounds, some of the stuff would sound, you know, um, offensive probably to Eastern Christians, not in communion with Rome. He recognizes, by the way, there have been mistakes made, or they, Roman made mistakes, in dealing with Greek customs, he says he's talking about um, um, trying to do new new addition of the missiles for Greek-speaking Christians, Maronites, Copts, and so on and so forth. Uh, after examining them, and he has this, he says he says this about this process that the you know congregations of Rome were doing. He says the work was revised scrupulously to avoid the slightest injury to the Greek rite and to ensure that this rite remained unimpaired and entire. This course was followed even though previously in their utter ignorance of the Oriental liturgies and rites, which existed in the Eastern Church before the time of the schism, some of our theologians whose expert knowledge was confined to the Western rite used to condemn every detail which differed from this rite, unquote. So he recognized that they'd, made, they'd, made, they'd, made, they'd screwed up in the past sometimes doing this, which, again, is important um, because it's sometimes urged... And I think this is much truer, uh, as I've said before, of the later modern period where there's this sense that, well, Rome never made any mistakes about this stuff, and you just have to accept everything in detail. Um, Lambertini was too intelligent to make that claim. And, and to be fair, not every pope would think this way. They would make, I think, the fairly, fairly obviously not true assertion that Rome had never made any mistakes in dealing with the Greeks. So this is, I think, a big admission by a bishop of Rome. And... Um, but one of the things he beats like a dead horse is this is not about customs. It is about faith. Um, uh, he's, again, he, he, remember, he comes back to the missionary who originally wrote him a letter, and he says, um, I'll read the whole thing. He says, the missionary who was attempting, uh, quote, the missionary who was attempting with God's help to bring back Greek and Eastern schismatics to unity should devote all his effort to the single objective of delivering them from doctrines at variance with the Catholic faith. In other words, about doctrine, um, more or less, not really about uh, customs. And he repeats again um, for, I think, the second or third time. Uh, third time, because he says, third and finally, what has already been said, it can be inferred from that a missionary who wants to convert an Eastern schismatic should not attempt to make him accept the Latin rite. For the only work entrusted to the missionary is that of recalling the Oriental to the Catholic faith, not that of making him accept the Latin rite. 
there's kind of one exception to this in this 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 document, which is so fascinating. He mentions at one point possible there have been Latins who have gone over to the Greek rites or gone over to the Oriental rites, and he expressly forbids this, and he says it in these terms. Quote, since the Latin rite is the rite of the Holy Roman Church, and this church is the mother and teacher of the other churches, the Latin rite should be preferred to all other rites. It follows that it is not lawful to transfer from the Latin to the Greek rite. Uh, he also says that those who have gone from the, from the Eastern rites to the Latin rite may not go back again to the Eastern rite. And he says this because this is happening in certain places, particularly with the Maronites. We'll get to that when we talk about them. I mentioned that. If you, again, this sounds like a little bit like Latinization, right? Like Rome is superior to the rest of the these 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 rites, therefore it should be preferred. That's not. A, I have to stress that's not. He's not making a cultural a statement of cultural superiority. It's about doctrine. Uh, this goes back to the what Rome has always thought of itself as. It has because um, Peter and Paul died there because they both built up the Church of Rome. Its traditions are superior. Um, and from its tradition comes its responsibility to guard the entire church uh, in terms of its orthodoxy. And that's the reason. Not because it's prettier, not because it's be- better in cultural terms. Now, again, you can criticize the, the, you know, the early modern church for saying, well, they, didn't, they didn't, weren't understanding enough of culture. Well, nobody did <laughs> in 1755. Uh, that, that idea was literally not been invented. It's a 19th century idea in a lot of ways. But that's not their concern. Their concern is doctrine. And again, one universal doctrine, not relative, culturally speaking. Um, and again, they didn't always act this way. Sometimes it was clearly just cultural stuff between these two churches. Don't get me wrong. But, um, but, it, uh, but it's a, it is a consistent concern of Rome and dictates a lot of what you're going to see, even when, it doesn't, even when it gets screwed up in practice. Um, one last thing I want to mention about this. Two things. One is that you have, he mentions, and I'll mention this when I talk about the Maronites and the, um, and the, and the, um, the Slavic Byzantine Catholics. He mentions there are some Eastern Christians who uh, adopt some of the rites of the Latin and the Western churches. Uh, that's actually, as we've seen already, that's happened without necessarily being imposed. So he's aware of that as well. But all of this comes down to basically two things. Um, 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 he talks about, and he, he's, he, he mentions this here. He, he mentions it's kind of, it's just kind of interesting. There's a, um, 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 he's talking about changing the, the rights of, uh, of a Greek ritual, right? Um, he says that you can, change parts of it, but you can't change the whole thing. Uh, he means the Greek rite in communion with Rome. He says that, um, uh, although he's talking about a particular uh, instance of this, but he says, although a specific Greek ritual was abolished, I'm quoting here, the Greek rite itself and all its other prescriptions were preserved unchanged. In addition, to remove even a part of the rite is not within the power of any individual, but requires the intervention of the public authority of the supreme head of the universal church, the Roman pontiff. Again, two things there. If it's an ancient rite, it basically has its own authority. But if there's any question about it, this is about jurisdiction of the head of the church, which is Rome. So it's as much to do with with jurisdiction 
concern for orthodoxy as it is with any sort of like the customs themselves in the way that the Pope saw this in this time period. And again, this is the main thing is that it has this idea that, um, that it's about orthodoxy. And so I'll, I'll repeat all these, by the way, five takeaways from Alate Sunt. You'll see this throughout this period. One, Rome's concerns. Uh, it's five concerns. One, missionaries should not impose the Latin rite on Eastern Christians in communion with Rome. Two, the Holy See only alters rites of Eastern churches when it's a question of orthodoxy. Three, Eastern Catholics can adopt some rituals from the Latin rite, but are strongly discouraged from changing rites. This is an act that the Holy See reserves to itself. Um, has to be approved by them. Four, it, Latins are forbidden uh, from changing to the Eastern rites because it sees you know Rome as having preeminence over the other churches. And then five, Eastern Catholics can use their liturgy, use Latin churches for their liturgy, and vice versa where necessary. That's not a matter of of uh, mixing rites, just uh, using the different places. And that'll be a major. Uh, that'll be the basic outline of how Rome views all this. And so when you when we think about this next time, when we talk about what is a very, it, it, it's, as you're going to see, um, Portuguese exploration into India basically causes a lot of the dissensions you see today in the, um, in the church in India. I mean, the, leave aside Protestantism, which is a later phenomenon, but there, there, as you'll see, there's, there's basically four or five different churches, uh, Eastern, either Orthodox or Catholic, in, the, <laughs> in, in India, literally. Five, I think, five jurisdictions. And that's a direct result of, of what happened in the 16th century, which, again, I'm not saying Rome has nothing to do with this, but it has a lot to do with both, um, you know, Portuguese you know, exploration, their, their interest in trying to, you know, make money through trade, uh, as well as Rome's concern for Orthodox, as well as, yes, there is some what we see in modern terms as sort of cultural chauvinism. There's a little bit of that there as well, but it's more complicated than just Rome Latinized, Rome bad. It doesn't work that way. Again, not saying there's nothing there, but it, it's, it's complicated when you look at this. And I, you know, I say this is not uh, an apologetic podcast. Um, obviously, I'm Roman Catholic, so you might not see that if you're from Orthodox, but I really do think it's overdone, some of the things that are going on here. As you're going to see, sadly, it's not really all that overdone in the case of, of the uh, uh, St. Thomas Christians of India. So, that's a wrap for this episode of Controversies in Church History. If you like this uh, episode of uh, Controversies in Church, if you like this series, by the way, go to Spotify. They have a thing where you can leave comments. I'll try to put up some polls and stuff. Leave messages. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you liked. Something sucked. Let me know. If it was great, let me know. Uh, any contributions help me try to make this better for you. I'm doing this as a service to you guys. Um, you know, um, I know I do this sort of begging for money thing now. It'd be nice, <laughs> but it's not really the primary reason I do this. I'm trying to spread knowledge for you. So whatever suggestions, try to make them as thoughtfully as can so it'll help me a little bit. But uh, do leave comments, and I'll try to make that more interactive. And I, I promise at some point, a little, a little things are set now. I'm going to do a live stream. So if you want to ask me questions about something, about this series, about anything, we'll do that soon, I promise. Just been busy with some stuff lately. Should have time. Promise, promise, promise. Updates coming soon. But, man, like the content. Go tell a friend. Uh, spread the word about this. Tell people about controversies in church history. Um, websites, churchcontroversies.com. Find us there. Facebook, go like the page, Controversies in Church History. 
Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't do anything. I, 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 I share stuff, but it's not much. I don't really like Twitter. Uh, but I am on there. Um, uh, yeah, Spotify for podcasters, Apple Podcasts. Uh, YouTube, uh, subscribe to YouTube, even though it's, 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 you know, it's a thing. I haven't done things there yet. We'll do eventually some interviews. It's, it's coming. Trust me. It's coming. Uh, but also, um, uh, more subscribers that I have, I, I think I'm halfway there to a thousand subscribers. I can begin to monetize the channel so to help defray some, uh, advertising costs. I'm about to take out some advertising. It's going to cost a decent amount of money. So, uh, anyway, but uh, if you also, if you would like to uh, patronize the podcast, if you want to help out financially, Controversies in Church History is on Patreon. You can go there and become a donor, patron, uh, and again, you'll have some exclusive content sooner rather than later, as well as early access to episodes. So, that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you all. Uh, have a great and wonderful week. Uh, hear from me. Hear from you. You'll be hearing from me soon. Take care. God bless.